The first person I met who was openly homosexual was a guy that I'll call John. John had, he's a super nice guy. He had a folder uh, that had slits on the front and the back. And on his folder, I always remember looking at it because I was always a bit, I don't know, I was always a bit nervous. Never wanted to see it because he would have these attractive men on the front and back of his folder. Remember one time he said, hey, Rod, do you, do you hate me because I'm gay? I said, well, no, I don't. I don't hate you. Disagree with your life, style choices, and the things that you do. Um, but no, I don't hate you. Another person I met, um, call this one John 2. Uh, this one had a, a whole season of life where he gave himself over to his desires. Everything, just everything you can imagine, that was his thing. He loved it. He longed for that until he was shared the gospel. From that point on, his life was radically changed. He would go on to marry, have a family. Still serves the Lord. I've met several students. Many of them in my past have been in youth ministry a long time and uh, several students that I have ministered to in one way or another have chosen to follow a different path. One in particular came on my radar. Um, actually, there's two. There's two I want to talk to you about. One student struggled with homosexuality for the bulk of his life. Always had the desires, always had these inclinations to, to see the the same sex as being more attractive. And so uh, for the duration of his life, he tried hard to say no to those desires until high school when he met a guy. Grew emotionally attached, became more and more um, emotionally intimate with him. And the next thing you know, he's saying, I would rather have him than have Jesus. I pled with him. I pled with him. Don't do this. You know this is not going to be for your good. Don't do this. It was in my office, pleading with him not to do what he did. And you know what he chose? He chose the guy. Another student, um, one I didn't know as well, but a student of mine nonetheless. You're going to have a hard time reading this, and that's okay. They posted on their media feeds something that I want to, I want to show you. Here's what it says. Life update. Hey, so given my upbringing, I feel I need to make... Take care of yourself, man. Go ahead. Good. I feel I need to make a post to bring some thoughts out into the open and also set some boundaries with folks. I have several important things to talk about in the first two. I blurred because you don't need to know those things. But the third one, I go on to say I'm queer. Welcome, welcome. I'm bi and ace. You can use the internet to look up those terms if you want. No, I do not believe it's a sin to be gay. Yes, I still have a relationship with God. No, this is not open for conversation. I don't owe anyone an explanation, so please don't ask for one. 
I'm so relieved to finally be open about this part of me. Number four, let me introduce you to my partner, poet. This is poet, and of course they have a photo there of that person. Some of you may already know them under a different name. They are non-binary and go by they, them pronouns. So happy to be loved by such a wonderful and supportive person. They really are a fantastic partner, and I'm so thankful for them. Please do not refer to them by their dead name or by the wrong pronouns. Comments will be deleted. So I guess that's it. Please take some time to think about your responses before you post it, as I will be censoring hurtful and negative comments and messages. This is for my mental health and well-being. These are my boundaries, and I ask you to respect them. Love, one of my students. This is a heavy subject, and it's a personal one. Not that I have wrestled with same-sex attraction or transgenderism, but it is something that you guys should be aware is a regular part of the world around us, and I don't have to convince you of that. I know you know that. But here's the thing. Whether you land on the, I never have same-sex attraction, I don't struggle with transgenderism, uh, or maybe that is you, here's the thing. Uh, sexual immorality of a wide variety are things that you're going to have to learn to deal with, either because you personally struggle with them or you know people who do. And that's everyone in this room. Everyone in this room, this sermon's for you. Even if you're not SSA or you consider yourself to be the opposite gender, this sermon is still for you because you have to deal with it personally in some measure or and uh, relationally with people that you know, care, and love. And let me just tell you, I assume that in a room like this, there are people that do wrestle with some of those attractions or have some kind of uh, sexual inclination that maybe they can't be quite open about because maybe they don't feel safe with people or what have you, but I just assume that in this room there's people that have those desires. So you would do well to listen closely to everything that I, I want Scripture to say to you. Um, rather, I'm letting Scripture speak through me. Whether it's you or someone you know and love, this is relevant for you. How do you respond as a Christian to this? Or if you are the person who has same-sex attraction or you feel like you're the opposite gender or even if you're just a porn addict or even if you just have these weird, crazy uh, sexual perversions or inclinations that just kind of pop into your head, what do I do with those? How do I respond to those things? What am I supposed to say to myself? What am I supposed to say to others? Should I in indulge those things? Especially if it's not something I'm choosing, does that suggest then that my identity is that thing and therefore I should follow that? There are so many questions that surround this. And let me just tell you now, I'm not going to be able to answer all of them, but we are going to answer some of the most serious, some of the most pressing. If you have follow-up questions to this sermon, I would encourage you to DM our Instagram account. And if there's enough of them, I'll do an Instagram live later this week or try to do a couple posts on our, on our feed just so that I can give you further answers. But again, I'm not going to answer everything. We're going to answer some of the most important. How does God want us to respond to same-sex attraction, transgenderism, uh, sexual immorality, sleeping with my girlfriend, my boyfriend, um, masturbation, all the things that fall under the umbrella of sexual morality? What does God want us to do with desires that lead us to that place? And especially the point of this tonight, we're going to spend time talking about the desires that lead us to feel attracted to the opposite, excuse me, same sex, or the desire or the inclination that says, I am a man biologically, but I feel like a woman, or vice versa. How do I deal with that? The issue is complicated and increasingly more and more so. If, if we don't trust and believe what Scripture has to say about who we are. If we believe and trust what Scripture has to say about who we are, things are a little easier in terms of understanding it. 
Not simple to the point of being easy to overcome, but it's simpler to approach, and so that's why we need to listen. Ultimately, here's what it comes down to. We need to learn to submit our sinful desires and inclinations to God's word as we wait for his future deliverance. We submit our sinful desires and inclinations to God in his word as we wait for his future deliverance. Last week we looked at Genesis 2. God made male, female, says it's good, put them together in marriage and says that's amazing, that's great. Adam, I want you to be the leader. Eve, I want you to submit to him and be his helpmate together. You complement one another and you become all that I desire for you to be. As you and your family grow, you bless the world. You're made for this. I made you to be a husband and wife. I made you to build a family. I made you guys to flourish and thrive under these conditions, male, female, one relationship together, one flesh union. You procreate, you create a family. This is the human blueprint for flourishing. Things are awesome. Because at the end of chapter two, we leave Adam and Eve naked and unashamed. They're happy. They're enjoying life as a, as a couple. But not too long after that, things go awry. And that's why we turn to Genesis chapter three now. We're gonna see how things were great, but things change. Genesis chapter three, starting at verse one. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And of course, if you know your Bible, the serpent is a reference to Satan, the devil, the liar, the deceiver, the one who wants to accuse believers. Okay, so the devil comes in. He's inhabiting the body of a serpent. Uh, He said to the woman, and notice his tack here. Did God actually say, you shall not eat any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Well, hold on, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now Eve's response here is mostly correct. She's imprecise. In Genesis 2.17, God makes clear what he wants. And in fact, the way that God presents it in Genesis 2.17 is, look, you can surely eat any of the fruit of the garden except for this one. But everything else you can enjoy. Don't touch this one. Enjoy it all. Don't touch this one. Eve sees it and says, yeah, he says you can eat this. And she, she kind of, again, mostly accurate, but she slightly twists it. She takes God's uh, command to enjoy the creation. And she says, well, he says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. She focuses on the negative where God focuses on the positive. Verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Serpent's tactic, he starts, first of all, challenging the scripture, and then he ultimately contradicts it. He says to Eve, listen, Eve, God's hiding some things from you. You eat this tree, you eat of this fruit, and let me tell you, you will be just like God. You'll know things you never knew before. Take it. Notice what happens in verse six. Actually, no, don't look at verse six. We're gonna save that. Stop that for now. Satan has a threefold strategy. He challenges God's word. He says, did God really say that you shall not eat of any of the fruit? I mean, really, that's not the command, right? That's not what God said. But he challenges it, teases it out. He challenges it. Then he contradicts it. You will not surely die, Eve. And then... He contorts it. 
he contorts it. He says, you're not only not gonna die, but you're gonna be like God. Doesn't that sound awesome, Eve? Wouldn't you like to be God? Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that Satan's only half lying here because at the end of this, you realize they do become like God and they do, in some ways, know good and evil, but not the way that the devil promised it. You see, what Satan is doing is he's creating a new plausibility structure. This is important because this is gonna help us build a foundation for how to respond to same-sex attraction and transgenderism, sexual immorality, pornographic desires, yada, yada, yada. Satan creates a new structure. He says, you know what? Uh, The whole thing about what God said, let's throw that out. Let me start a new one right here. I'm gonna start a new foundation. And the foundation is uh, you can be like God. God's holding out on you. And in fact, you're gonna be better off if you obey this structure as opposed to the structure that God created. Notice I'm using the term plausibility structure, okay? A plausibility structure is something that informs our pattern of life, something that we would say, yeah, that makes sense. I believe that. I assume that to be true. And the plausibility structure is all around us. It functions much in the way of a worldview. Uh, An idea that comes to the fore of your mind would be something like this. Uh, Are you a product of evolution or are you the act of God in creation? Well, if you talk to an average person on the street or one of your classmates, they're going to say, well, Darwinian evolution. We are You know, we've evolved from yada, yada, yada. Plausibility structure is that it's implausible. It doesn't make sense that God created us. Plausibility structure right now is that we're evolutionary byproducts. For Christians, the plausibility structure is God made us. We're meant to be male, female. Uh, But what Satan does is he undermines all of God's plausibility structure, all of what God taught them. And he says, let me give you a different narrative to work from. You've been told the story that God loves you, cares about you, and wants you to flourish as man and woman. But let me do something different. Let me tell you something different. What God said, not true. I'm going to create a new thing. I'm going to tell you a new story. Creates a new story. He captures Eve by creating and crafting an alternative reality. See, for disobedience to God to make sense, Satan must undermine what she previously thought to be true. Namely, God created her and Adam to flourish in the garden in obedience to God. He says, don't obey God, do what I say, this is a better path. Step one, point number one. If you and I are going to think rightly about any kind of sexual deviancy, any kind of sexual urge and desire, we have to start by understanding that we are entering into a world of narratives, stories, and there are many, many false narratives. Your job as a Christian then is to identify and reject false narratives. Identify and reject false narratives. Stories that we tell ourselves about each other, They're all over the place. In fact, uh, false narratives are becoming a greater issue because uh, false narratives are part of the election cycle. QAnon and a pizza shop that hosts pedophiles and conspiracy theories. And honestly, we're dealing with so much mis- and disinformation that New York Times actually wrote an article about this. The article is called How the Biden Administration Can Help Solve Our Reality Crisis. Notice that word reality. Okay, the word reality. How can the administration help solve our reality crisis? What do you mean by that? Well, the reality crisis is that no one knows what to believe anymore. Everyone's getting news from various sources and everyone's throwing their hands up in the air saying, what, do I, what am I supposed to believe? This source says this, this source says that, uh, Facebook is skewing my results, Instagram is only showing me things that I wanna see and it's not giving me the whole story. I mean, I, no one knows what to believe anymore. 
Twitter is kicking people off the platform because they're saying things that are forbidden. And so they're trying to eliminate hate speech. What is hate speech after all? And is that protected under the First Amendment? I mean, all of this enters into the picture. And so the New York Times says, you know, let's, let's do this. Let's appoint a reality czar. They find these experts, and the experts suggest the best way to deal with our current uh, false narrative problem is to find someone who will um, sift through all the data and tell us what to believe. One of the killer lines in this article, they, he puts it like this. He says, how do you unite a country in which millions of people have chosen to create their own version of reality? The irony is dripping. They don't realize that they're doing the very same thing that they're saying that everyone else is doing. No one trusts the media due to bias, and I understand that. We all get that. But here's the thing, young person. There's only one source of truth that's ultimately going to make sense of everything else around us. You must learn to submit yourself to the truth of God's word and not the false narratives around you. But first, you have to learn to identify what those narratives even are. And for most of you, you're bathed in it. You're taught this. You're reinforced this by your social media feeds so that you never critically think about what you're being fed. It's just assumed. The songs that are in the top 100 right now, I listen to a couple. I do this often. I listen to the top 100 songs just to see, okay, what's being given? What's assumed? And if you notice, much of the assumptions that our media portray is, even though we want to empower women, they are still objects of male desire. And it's okay for a male to sing about her and to talk about her in, uh, and, and as a sexual object as long as the, the tune is good, as long as the melody captures my attention. And in fact, I do believe in women empowerment and feminism and all that stuff. However, uh, it's okay for a young, two, two young women to sing about their body parts in ways that are profane and pornographic. That's okay. I mean, the world is just grasping at whatever it can to figure out how to live. Your job, young person, is to put on the scriptures and to say, how do I interpret the world around me? How do I understand and reject the false narratives that are being taught? Let me give you several that you need to be aware of, okay? False narratives. First, there are two major categories, one about God, one about you. Let's talk about God first. The false narratives about God are plentiful. Let's start with an easy one. God is stingy. And in fact, if anyone even does believe in God, he's antiquated. He's cruel. He oppresses us because he doesn't let us do what we want to do. He's this old mythological creature in the sky who was meant to keep lowly people like yourself in order, in order uh, to keep you from rebelling against the monarchy or against the presidency or whatever else. God is stingy. He's keeping things from you. And that's exactly what the devil does to Eve. Did God really say you couldn't eat of any tree? No, Eve, let me tell you the truth. What's really happening here is that God's holding out. God is stingy. Especially when God does things like define reality for us, telling us what we should do and shouldn't do. Yet Psalm 84.11 tells us, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is the opposite of stingy. He is generous, so generous, in fact, that he was willing to give his own life, his own son, to die that you might be forgiven. How about another one? God is not just stingy. He's a liar. When God tells you that it is good to submit and obey, that's not true. God is actually the opposite of that. He's, he's a liar. When you submit and obey, you're being restricted from your full freedom. You're being restricted from living your best life now, your true authentic self. 
And yet, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. Hebrews 6.18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. And yet, so many people have this concept that God is sus. God, uh, God is not to be trusted because he, he's got suspicious motives. We don't know what to believe about him. And furthermore, everyone's got their own interpretation about God. So how do I even know what to believe, how to understand that? Uh, creation is not good. Godly male leadership is not good. Uh, his rules are oppressive and archaic. They're not good. You, you see this. You may not, be, you may not uh, see someone say this exact phrase, but this is the plausibility structure. This is the assumption in the culture that you inhabit. Do you see it? God is stingy. God is a liar. And of course, one of the most popular God is just non-existent altogether. Satan doesn't tell Eve he doesn't exist. It would be absurd at this point in human history. But today, one of the most pressing issues is that most of you are taught to assume God is a figment of your imagination at best. In fact, so many people are, are walking in the direction of practical atheism that the uh, four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse are growing in popularity. You may not know who they are. It doesn't matter. But Romans 1 talks about this. Romans 1 gives a picture of people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It says, even though God's attributes are clearly seen in all creation, people look at that and discount it entirely. It's like looking at an entire laboratory of evidence. There's fingerprints. There's clothing. There's, you know, there's blood samples from the... From the from the, the, scene, the crime scene, everyone can see the evidence, but someone walks in there, many people walk in there and says, oh, I see all the evidence, but can't make a case. Don't know for sure. The evidence, that God, the evidence that God presents to you, you guys remember? Creation, conscience, Christ, scripture. But in Romans 1, it's on creation, one of the most obvious signs of God's existence. False narratives, God's stingy, God is a liar, God is non-existent. There are so many more I could have picked, but these are some of the, the biggest ones. How about false narratives about you? I already briefly addressed this one, but one of the false narratives about you is that you are the result of an evolutionary process. And so, consequently, you possess no inherent value or dignity. Notice that I, I italicized the word inherent. Um, you possess value, you possess dignity if you choose that, if you want that. You possess no in, inherent. It's not innate to you as a person. Your value exists insofar as you choose to manifest it. That's what evolutionary theory leads to. It's a form of nihilism. Nothing matters. Nothing is of consequence because I am just an accident. I'm just a, a random beneficial mutation at the latest stage in evolution. That's a false narrative in case you didn't know that. Genesis 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth. He created me and you. If evolution is true, consequently, you are a God. Why? Well, because you determine your own meaning. The most important questions about life, about death, about family, about relationships, you determine what those mean. And if you determine that those mean nothing, well, they guess they mean nothing then. Again, you have no inherent value under the plausibility structure of you being a product of evolution. You're your own God in that not only do you create your own meaning, but you create your own reality. If you want to be a prostitute, a president, or a poodle, all of that is up to you as long as you don't hurt anybody. 
And I throw those three examples out, and some of you might be tempted to laugh because I do tell jokes up here, but those are serious cases. People that honestly believe, look, I, I, I was born in this body, but I believe I should be this, that, or the other thing. Reality is shaped and defined by you if there's no God governing the end from the beginning, if there's no God telling you how to understand reality. You effectively become a God because you determine your own meaning, you determine your own reality, and you determine your own rules. That's good for you. That's good for you. Not good for me. I'm glad you found that helpful. That's not my truth. I need to speak my truth. In fact, one of the phrases I absolutely hate, I I need to speak my truth about this. (laughs) What does that even mean? What do you mean your truth? If it's true, it's true. It doesn't doesn't fall into subjective categories of this or that. What most people mean by that is that they're expressing their opinion. I like vanilla, you like chocolate. Okay, great. We can have disagreement about that. Vanilla for the win. Vanilla is better. But when you start saying, look, my truth is that uh, I, I defy gravity. Your truth is that gravity still is, is a binding law upon you. Well, let's both walk off the, no, let's have you walk off the cliff and see if gravity, my truth, fits your reality at that point. Because I think my truth at that point is going to really override your truth. You understand that truth can't have a, 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 truth can't have a, a subjective appeal. Opinion, fine. But truth itself, not fine. You effectively become your own God. You you determine your own meaning. You determine your own reality. You determine your own rules. These are false narratives. In case you heard me uh, wrongly, these are false narratives. This is not true. This is the exact opposite of what Scripture teaches. But if you think about this and what I just said, now put that in the category of what we read just a few minutes ago. Do you see them in there? Notice in, in point three here, I don't believe it's a sin to be gay, yet, yes, I still have a relationship with God. No, this is not open for discussion. Why? Well, because if you disagree, it doesn't matter. That's your truth. This is my truth. Let me be authentic. Poet. Poet goes under a different name. They're non-binary and go by they, them pronouns. Let me ask a question here. If poet were to go to the doctor, and let's just suppose, I don't know, suppose she's a biological female, Will she see an OBGYN or will she go and see a different kind of doctor? If she's got a female issue, if her her ovaries are hurting or if her uterus is is hurting, will she see an OBGYN? Of course she will. Of course she will. So just because she says she's non-binary doesn't mean that she actually is. She goes by a they-them pronoun. I think she's a she. So happy to be loved. Okay. Um... Please don't refer to them by their dead name or the wrong pronouns. Comments will be deleted, etc. cetera. You, you, get the, you get the point here. What I, what I want you to see so desperately here is that what's happening in our culture is a fight for God's reality. And when I say God's reality, I'm not trying to adjectivize it. It's the reality. It's the only reality. Male is good. Female is good. God made this all to be good to be the way that things are supposed to be. But Genesis 3 happens, sin enters the world, confusion enters the world, uh, uh, believing what what, uh, the devil says and not what what God says suddenly overcomes and overrides everything else you've heard and seen. Genesis 3, 6, I I slowed down. We're looking at just one verse for our second point, but I slowed down here because it's so important. Take a look. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Start with the plausibility structure, and now we slow down to see how Eve responds to this. Look at what she says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and saw that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. That's the fall. That's when humanity goes from God's perfection into a devastating, forever ongoing, until Jesus changes things, drastic change in our nature, drastic change in our relationship to one another and to creation. Let me just point out a couple quick things here. Notice that when Eve is looking at the food, she does something that previously only God did. She says, hey, this food is good, right? She said, this is good. Before that, God was the one defining good. Now, Eve takes the, the, the driver's seat and says, hey, this food, this food is good for me. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. That is, it was physically attractive. We don't know what the fruit was, but it's something that was enjoyable to look at. That it was um, good for food. It was practical. She could actually eat it. Yeah, why, why can't I eat this, right? I mean, why would God tell me not to, not to eat something that's so edible? Looks good. I want to eat it. And also, somehow or another, it's going to make me wise. A serpent told me that if I eat this, I will suddenly know, uh, I don't know, like God knows. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam, what were you doing, bro? He's sitting behind. It seems like, the, given, given the grammar here, Adam is standing perhaps next to Eve. Maybe Eve is standing here and she's talking to this snake and Adam is just like, hmm, cool. Adam was supposed to lead, to protect, to serve, to love her. Sadly, he fails miserably in this regard. And Eve repeats something that we're going to see later in the New Testament. She succumbs to worldly desires. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Food looked good. Desire to make me wise. Um, I want it. Worldly desires. The fall began with sinful desires. The fall began with sinful desires. Eve looks at the forbidden and she says, I want that. How can I justify that? Oh yes, it's attractive. I can become wise. And after all, I deserve it, I think. Fall began with sinful desires. So let's get practical for a second. If you have a same-sex desire, you're attracted to the same sex, or you believe yourself to be a, you have desires on the inside that tell you that you're the opposite gender. Term is transgender. And they're feelings that you, as far as you know, did not ask for, okay? They're feelings that happened to you. You didn't choose them. They just showed up one day. Maybe when you think far back, you remember, oh, I kind of remember in elementary school, I was attracted to this person or that person. It was the wrong, you know, the wrong sex, I guess. It was the same sex. Uh, or I'm a guy and I felt attracted to female type things and I felt like I was more and more a female instead of a male, whatever it is, whatever it is. Are you still culpable for the desires that you did not choose? Are you still culpable for the inclinations of your heart that you did not choose? What would you answer to that? If you desire something that God says is wrong, are you culpable? Or if your brain tells you that you're the opposite gender, are you still morally responsible for that before God? Yes. 
Ultimately, because they're your sinful desires. They belong to you. It belongs to your brain, which, which belongs to your soul. It's coming from you. You are being tempted. In fact, James says it this way. Um, he says, first of all, don't, don't let anyone tell you that you're being tempted by God because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. God is not the one asserting these desires in your life. They're coming from inside of you. Uh, later, uh, James would say, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The desires that exist inside of you that are not God's will, again, whether it's pornography or masturbation or same-sex attraction or a a transgenderism or anything else that you can think of that relates to sexual attraction, that comes from you and it is sinful. But I don't choose it, Pastor Rod. I understand that. I understand that. Um, There are parallels for all of us. Straight or same-sex attracted, all of us have those things that just pop in our minds where it's like, oh, I didn't ask for that, but that sinful thought came from me. And that sinful inclination, uh, I want to steal things. And when I see things that are valuable and people leave them behind, I want to steal it. I didn't ask for that feeling. It just showed up one day. Does that suddenly make me morally, uh, more, more, morally free from that responsibility? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Because it belongs to my soul. My soul is inclined toward evil. That's what scripture tells us. That's your soul, your brain going haywire. What do I do with that then? Oh, I'm supposed to... I'm guilty. I guess, I guess God hates me. No, no. Here's how we're to respond to this. You need to remember that you have three enemies. You have three enemies. Among those enemies, first, are the world. The world has uh, the, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. The world has worldly desires that it asserts. It, you'll see it in advertisements. You'll see it on your Insta feed. You'll see it on your TikTok feed where they're giving you desires and showing you things that are forbidden. You're appealing to those things or they're appealing to you Uh, and they're stoking those fleshly desires, the world. On top of that, you also have the devil. The devil operates in such a way where he is controlling so much of what's happening in our world. God gives him free reign in a lot of places where he can have influence and impact on the world around us. How do you know that? Well, you can just look at your media. You can look at, I mean, anything around us. The the cultural uh, zeitgeist of our time is antithetical to anything Christ-exalting. But then, of course, you have public enemy number one, in your soul, your own flesh. You are really your own worst enemy. Because apart from the devil and apart from the world, you still have desires that go against what God says is right and good. It says here in verse three, among whom, sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What are you supposed to do? Okay, here it goes. My second point is for everybody. Okay, don't, don't discount the second point. They, okay, that's for, the, that's for the people that are gay. It's for the people that are No, this is for everybody. Everybody. When your heart inclines you to the thing that God says is forbidden, which I'm saying Eve did this already. Eve did this. She said, oh, the forbidden fruit? Let me figure out how, how I can get to that. When your mind or your heart leads you to want to do things that are against God's word, what should you do? Point number two. Renounce your rebellious desires. Say no. Reject them. Deny them. Stop them. Do not allow yourself to give in to them. Feed, don't feed them. And in fact, 
In fact, what you'll see soon is that I, I think because they're sinful, rebellious desires, it actually requires another step. But let me give you reasons why you should not listen to your heart. You should not listen to your sinful inclinations. Number one, you should reject them and renounce them because they are self-destructive. First Peter says, First Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as strangers in the land, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Young person, your soul, the passions of the flesh that come from inside are waging war against you. A war is meant to dominate and crush its opponents. That's what's happening here. Your sinful desires are not your friends. How do you know their sinful desires? Scripture tells you which is why it's so important you be in the word so that you know what God says about the things that you think and feel. Your sinful desires are self-destructive. They wage war against your soul. Can I give you some pastoral counsel? Always be suspicious of your desires. There's a kind of obsessive suspicion that kind of matures into this self-loathing. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am saying, though, is that you should always be suspicious of what your heart most craves. You should always be suspicious about your self-talk because we have a tendency, all of us, to self-justify the things that we think are right, to justify our sin, to justify ourselves before others, and really to easily deceive ourselves. In fact, that's one of the reasons that you should renounce your desires. Seeking to find love or fulfillment in pornography, same-sex relationships, and trying to transition to your true gender, and seeking to find fulfillment in those things, you're actually undermining the very thing that can give you fulfillment, which is your relationship with Christ. Giving yourself over to same-sex attraction, giving yourself over to your sinful inclination is going to undermine and destroy the very thing you're trying to chase after. Fulfillment, joy, satisfaction that only comes in right relationship with Jesus. Renounce your rebellious desires because they're unreliable. Your deeply felt desires can and do often lie to you. Ephesians 4, 22-24 says that we're to put off our old self which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Christian, you need to hear me on this. Christian student, just because you're a Christian does not mean that your flesh will always lead you to the right thing. Your desires are still going to go askew. Your passions, your thoughts, your inclinations, that deep part of feeling like this is who I am, that can still lie to you. Why? Well, because you're in a fallen flesh. Yes, it's still your flesh. Yes, you're still responsible for it. But your job is to say no, because I know what my flesh is doing is leading me to things that aren't going to satisfy. It, has a, it promises to scratch the itch, but it only makes the itch worse. Your desires especially your rebellious ones, are unreliable. It should be obvious. I'm going to say it again, though. You need to have your mind renewed with Scripture. You have no chance in this world unless you're abiding in Christ and letting his word continue to direct you and guide you. You have no chance otherwise because the narrative is too strong, too powerful, too assumed. 
The world that you now live in, the media that you now ingest is so antithetical to Christ that you have no chance of understanding his will and his purpose apart from letting his word lead, guide, and direct you, which is why it's so important to be in it every day so that you're able to identify these things. Renounce your rebellious desires because they're self-destructive. They're unreliable and ultimately unfulfilling. Psalm 1611 tells us that uh, God, God is the one who makes us known, makes known to us the path of life. It says in his presence, there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The great secret is that living for Christ is greater joy than living our authentic self, air quotes. The irony is that your true self, your true authentic self, is the self that is holy, blameless, righteous, and living for Christ. This is what he wants for you. He wants the opposite of these things. Instead of self-destruction, rich blessing. Instead of unreliable false narratives, he wants you to be grounded in the truth. Instead of unfulfilling, plaguing desires, he wants you to be satisfied and rich, enriched in Christ. That's the life he wants for you. And you will not find that when you pursue ungodly desires. Why? Because we talked about this last week. The manufacturer made you. He knows how you're designed. He knows how you should live. And he gives prescriptions in his word for how you're to do that. Renounce your rebellious desires. These last several verses, skip on down to verse 14 for me. Genesis 3, verse 14. After Adam and Eve sinned, they realize they're naked. They try to cover themselves up. They see or hear God walking in the garden and suddenly they're afraid and so they hide themselves. God calls out to them and says, I was afraid. Adam eventually kind of half-heartedly comes clean, but not really, blames it on Eve. Verse 14, God issues a response to their rebellion. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and uh, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He says to the serpent, you're going to be humiliated. You're going to be uh, slithering on your belly the rest of your life. You're going to be lowly where you maybe once had a position of honor. You're now humbled and lowly. And there's going to be... Uh, Enmity, there's going to be fighting between the, the offspring of the devil and the offspring of God, children of the devil. To the woman, verse 16, he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, notice what happens to Eve. Eve, you're going to have difficulty with having kids. There's going to be pain there. But not only that, there's going to be relational strife entered into your relationship that's going, to, that's going to make your life hard. Where once there was harmony, there was nakedness, there was no shame, there was security. Now there's going to be pain. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be selfishness inserted into this relationship between you and Adam. And now things that used to be easy and a joy are now going to be so much harder because sin enters the picture. What this means now is that within human relationships, sin distorts and destroys the harmony that you and I should have together. That's one of the results of sin, one of the results of the curse. Verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, remember, Adam was supposed to lead, because you've listened to, to listen to the voice of your wife, 
and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now notice he's talking about creation. Creation had nothing to do with this. But because Adam and Eve were meant to oversee creation, they were meant to be uh, vice regents over all that God gave, he's saying because you uh, abdicated your responsibility, everything else around you now, the kingdom that I entrusted to you is cursed. Darkness enters the land. You know, like this, the snow in Narnia. Everything around you is cursed. Uh, thorns and thistles, viruses, you know, lights turn out, electricity doesn't, I mean, everything in creation is cursed. Still good, but cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God, in his grace, gives Adam an out. He says, uh, instead of being subjected to the fallenness of creation for the rest of your, you know, for the rest of eternity, you're going to die, which is his grace, is his grace, because he doesn't want to live on creation with all of the fallenness of his flesh and the fallenness of creation. Imagine living forever in a broken, dying body, but never actually dying. God gives Adam and Eve, all those who follow them, an out. You're going to die. Everything around you, your brain, your thoughts, creation, medications you take, um, everything around you is tainted with sin. Sin's effects reverberate through every aspect of your life, even your logical thinking. Scripture says that um, our fallen brains think brilliant thoughts but are also fundamentally broken because our brains, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, talks about the, uh, the, the ignorance that is in us due to uh, the hardening effects of sin. Everything around you is broken. There's sadness everywhere. Um, your bodies, because of the fall, your bodies will tell you lies. You might say to yourself, I feel like I'm a woman. Let me tell you, uh, your, your body is not lying to you. This is the reality. Your body's the reality. Your brain is sending you the wrong signals. We're sorry about that. We feel bad about that, but we don't give in to that. Your pornography desire is your flesh telling you, let's satisfy that itch sooner than later. Let's not wait till marriage. Let's not do what God says. Let's fulfill our own personal desires instead of using the organ that God gave us for God's intended purposes. Your body's going to lie to you. Your brain's going to struggle. The passions that you have, those are going to struggle under the weight of sin as well. What do we do? This is my favorite point. After this, trust Jesus for rescue from sin's curse. Young person, this is your only hope. This is your relief. This is your escape. If you have same-sex attractive desires, this is your answer. If you feel like you're a man in a woman's body, this is your answer. If you, if you love pornography and that's your thing, this is your answer. If you lust after the flesh of other people, this is your answer. If you're a cheater on tests, this is your answer. If you lie to your parents, this is your answer. If you're not a Christian and you're still living your own selfish life after whatever, this is the answer. One of the shows I've recently took to watching is called My 600-Pound Life. Discovery Plus. 
get it free through Verizon, so. I recently watched Samantha's story. Samantha weighed in at 977 pounds. Of course, in these documentary-style shows, they show her eating food incessantly, and that's, yeah, okay, there's, there's an issue there for her, obviously. She's afraid of dying, but it's what she says about this all throughout the, the, the documentary show that always captures me. I'm thinking, man, I want to talk to her because she says things like this. As she's eating her food, she says, she says I, I use food to cope. You know, when I'm sad, I eat. When I'm happy, I eat. She says, I feel my happiest when I have food around. I feel my happiest when I have food around. She also said, if I'm going to die anyway and food makes me happy, then why don't I just make myself happy? One time, in a moment of clarity, as she's weeping around her large body, she says, I just hate food. I hate it. She loves the very thing that's killing her. What an apt description of sin. Loving the very thing that's killing you. For those of you who are non-Christians, you need to turn your attention to Jesus Christ who saves from the wrath to come, who delivers from sin, condemnation, and death. He gives you power not only to be delivered from hell, but also to fight and have victory over sin right now. Young person who claims Christ, same-sex attracted, transgender, or whatever else you deal with, Christ is your solution. See, because even though we struggle under the weight of our sin and the weight of our flesh, Christ is the answer. He provides help. He provides security. He provides comfort. He provides strength. How do we do that? Well, we, we pursue him. Jeremiah 2.12 says this, Be appalled, O heavens. Be, be shocked at this. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. The two evils are this. Look at, look at this. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. God is saying, look, I'm shocked at this. The people that I've come to love are rejecting me. I'm their source of life. And they say, no, I don't want your life. I want my own life. And in fact, I, don't, I so don't want your life. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to create my own life. They create cisterns. They hew out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Essentially, it's, it's, a, it's a big tank carved out of stone. You can think of it like a, like a, like a bucket. God is saying, I'm your source of living water. And the people say, no, thank you. Let me just get this bucket with holes in it and I'll get my own water. This is mine. As their bucket leaks, God is saying, I can be your all satisfying Lord. I can be your God. I made you from me. You're designed to have your fullest, greatest joy out of knowing, loving, and living for me. And yet, all of us do this. We go after the poison. We go after the thing that's killing us. Trust Christ to rescue us from sin's curse. Well, how do I effectively do that? I got four quick things and then we're gonna wrap it up here. Repent of disordered desires. Young person, when the desires come, their sin, turn from them. Repent of disordered desires. Same-sex attraction, homosexual desire, whatever it is, transgenderism, pornography addiction, whatever, reject, repent of it. Repent of disordered desires. Chosen or unchosen. See, it's not the chosenness that determines whether a desire is good or bad. It's the object of your desire. 
the object of your desire is what determines what's good or bad. So when the desire comes up, when the inclination leads you to sin, repent of it. It would sound something like this, God, I'm so sorry that my soul leads me astray like this. Lord, I'm so sorry that my brain makes me think that this is acceptable or this is okay. Lord, please forgive me that my soul continues to in some way long for things that I don't want. Paul actually kind of relates to this in Romans chapter seven. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. When your mind and body lead you astray, repent of it. Father, forgive me for who I am, for what I am. Be like if you went to bed tonight and you had a sinful dream. Anyone have a sinful dream every now and then? I mean, do you ever think about things? You go to bed and you have an awful dream that you didn't choose. It's your brain doing stuff. And there have been times when I've had sinful dreams and I, I wake up and in a moment of lucidness, if God allows me to remember that, I say, Lord, forgive me. That's me. Yeah, I wasn't choosing it, but that's still me. Father, forgive me for my sinful desires, my disordered desires. Number one, Repent. Number two, trust that Jesus will supply strength. Jesus says, now I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. As you trust Christ, as you obey Christ, as you pray to Christ, as you involve your mind and heart in loving Christ, he says, I will bear fruit in your life. And that fruit is righteous fruit. Think about Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That fruit comes from those people who abide in Christ, who stay with him, who walk with him, talk with him, memorize his word, recite his word to him, trusting him. Trust Jesus for salvation. Trust Jesus for sanctification. Actively feed your faith while fighting sin. Romans 8.13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. If you live according to the way of your flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Live in the flesh, die. Live in the Spirit, live. That's your option. Feed your faith and fight your sin. Let me, let me encourage you. Young person, preach the gospel to yourself. Tell yourself the truth. You need to fundamentally, actively override the programming that your fallen flesh has. So preach the gospel to yourself. Look, young person, I don't know how much time you spend on TikTok or video games, but I'm sure for most of us it's too much. You're not feeding your faith when you're on TikTok. Even if you say, well, I follow Sean McDowell and he tells me things that are helpful. Okay, fine, 30 seconds. You're, but you're not feeding your faith in TikTok. You're not finding your greatest satisfaction and joy by doing things like spending 20 hours a week on games. Young men, please stop playing games. I, I get it. It's not a sin. I know I, I mean, this is me here. But I'm telling you, as a father seeking for wisdom for his sons, his spiritual sons, look, stop playing games. Mature. Be a godly man that a, a godly woman would want to follow. Don't give your time to things that are fruitless, wasteful activities. How much time do you spend on YouTube following people that are living their lives as you're watching them? You're watching them live their lives. How does that benefit you? Yeah, some of it educational, some of it entertainment-oriented, but put it aside. I'm not saying you can never do it. There are far better things, nobler things to set your, your attention on. Fight for your faith and fight against sin. Feed your faith, fight against sin. Lastly, find courage in the body of Christ. You need people tonight. You're gonna have an opportunity to share your heart with them. If you have attractions and desires, young men, tonight's the time to say something. Young women, tonight's the night to say something. If you haven't done it yet, tonight's the night. 
nothing special about tonight, but tonight's a good time to say, you know what, I need you guys to know, to hold me accountable, to ask me how I'm doing, to pray with me, to, to help me, to, to think about this the right way. Tonight's a night to involve people that you trust. On that note, let me just reiterate again, young men, gay jokes are not funny. Please stop. Please stop. I, there are a few things that are going to make more people feel like they can't be honest than people making fun of the very sin that they're struggling with. Don't pretend to be gay. Don't pretend to be a woman. Act like a man. Be sensitive to the people around you. Look, being sensitive and caring about people is not feminine. That's godly manhood. Godly manhood. Stop making fun of gay things. Stop trying to pretend to be a woman. Stop, you know, don't do that. Don't do that. Please, I'm begging you as a, as a pastor who cares about all of you, please don't do that. You need the community of faith around you. This is the way that you'll survive because for some of you, your homosexual desires will never leave. You might be a, a single person for the rest of your life. For some of you who have the transgender desires, you might have those for the rest of your life which is why all the more you need the body of Christ to surround you, to uphold you, to pray with you, to be your family, to be there with you and there for you. It's a terrible conclusion, but I'm gonna stop here because I wanna get you guys to small groups. Guys, I'm so, thank you for listening for this whole thing. I know it's, it's a lot. I had a lot to say from scripture, I trust I want you now tonight, as you prepare to go off into your small groups, just prayerfully prepare your heart to be honest about this. Please don't take it lightly. Don't assume that you have it all figured out. Uh, I know for those of us raised in Compass, you know a lot of scripture. Maybe tonight's a good time for you to practice learning how to share it, learning how to communicate it in a way that makes sense to an unbeliever so that you can be effectively prepared to help them. Again, even if you don't have any same-sex attraction or transgender people in your group, what about... What about pornography and masturbation? That's a good conversation. I know a lot of you guys are wrestling with that. Don't discount or dismiss this sermon. Go wrestle with it. Okay, let me pray for you guys and you'll be dismissed. God, thank you.